Amen. Thank you, choir, Dan, and instrumentalists for leading us so well in worship this morning. Today, we continue in our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. And today, as you heard read already in our service, we're in Matthew chapter 8. So if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, to the other side. Matthew 8, 18 through 27, to the other side. Well, the agreed upon meeting time was 3.30. Okay, the agreed upon meeting time was 3.30 on the dot. The last call for the Carnival cruise ship departing Nassau was 4.30. Kevin Hubenick told his friend Thomas, who tried to say four o'clock was a good rendezvous time, 3.30 is the time. And we're meeting right here at this fountain, at this entrance, before we all go to the boat together. Now, a quick recap. This group was headed to Atlantis from their Carnival cruise ship. It was Kevin, his wife, his two sons, 22 years old and 16 and their friend Thomas and his 12-year-old daughter. That group of six had ventured off away from the rest of their friends on the ship for one last afternoon of relaxation and fun until everything went wrong. You see, once they arrived in Atlantis, Kevin and his wife and their older son decided they would relax at the beach. They just wanted to, to lay there for a little while, for an afternoon or so. The 16-year-old boy, as well as Thomas and his daughter, decided they wanted to go on to the water park. And they wouldn't be hindered by the backpacks that they'd brought full of their stuff. You know, you can't be lugging that around the water park. So the, the three of them dumped their backpacks on Kevin. So there he is, relaxing on the beachside, guarding three backpacks with his wife and one of his sons. And the afternoon came to a close. 3.30 comes and they head to the rendezvous point. You got to meet up before you get back on the boat, just like they said. 3.30 comes, nothing. 3.45 comes, nobody. Four o'clock, nothing. Now, some of you are those on-time people are already uncomfortable in your pew. (laughs) This is eating you alive. 4.15, that's it. Kevin gives in. He sends his older son and the wife back to the boat. There's no way he's risking them all being there for this meetup. So he's going to stay. The two of them go back. Despite their uh, better judgment, they can't believe it. They don't want him to stay, but he's going to stay. 4.30 comes. Nothing. Finally, at 4.40, he gives up. He cuts his losses. Now, keep in mind, he still has, uh, don't ask me why, all three of the full backpacks standing there with no one to help. He decides he better get back to the ship. He doesn't want to miss it. He's not waiting for anybody else. Hopefully his younger son has made it back there somehow. So he gives up. He goes first to the person that looks most helpful, riding a golf cart. They turn him away. He starts by foot, but three backpacks is too many. So he jumps in a cab. He explains the story to the cab driver. Good, this guy understands. He punches the gas. They fly over bumps, around corners. He's elevated, floating at one point in the taxi. And then boom, traffic. 
Now you may be wondering, why didn't they just use their phones? Just pick them up, call each other, see where the wife is, see where the son is. But turns out all 10 of his friends back on the ship have been trying to call him at this point. And every time he answers, the phone just cuts off. He doesn't know how to call in a foreign country, so he's not dialing the right numbers to get back to them. That's not working either. Why didn't his friend come back? Well, he did, but he went to the rendezvous point and nobody was there, or at least he didn't see him. So he moved on to the ship. He's back in the cab. Now he's thinking, what's the fastest way to get back to this boat? I'm not getting left behind. So he ditches the cab. He goes for the walk. He starts walking down the street. Two blocks into it, he's huffing and puffing. He keels over. He can't carry three, three backpacks all the way back to the ship. This turns out to be further than he thought. The cab catches up. He got back in the cab. He drives. They're getting closer. They make it to the port area. He jumps out of the cab, and a man on a golf court says, Are you Kevin? That's a relief. People out here are looking for Kevin. Yes, he says. Well, then get on. Jump on the back. He jumps in the back of the golf cart. The golf cart's zooming him towards the ship. Finally, he can see it. It's still there. What a sigh of relief. He's excited that he made it. Why is the ship moving? Now, wait a minute. The ship's moving faster. He gets close. He's so close he can literally jump off the dock and touch the ship if he wanted to, but there's no ramps left. The motors are already spinning. It's gone, Alfred says. Alfred's the golf cart driver. No, he can't believe it. His family, his stuff, all of it. He's got three of their backpacks, three of their phones. They're all locked. He doesn't know the codes, but he's got them all. And that's when he says, I went numb, anger, sadness, emotions, all going to me at once. I wanted to scream, but I couldn't. I wanted to cry, but I couldn't. I keep looking at the ship thinking, maybe mind control will turn this ship back around or something. And this is when reality kicked in for Kevin. He was all alone in a country he wasn't familiar with, and the ship was gone. He had quite literally missed the boat. Did his son make it? How many people else, how many others missed the boat? And why would Captain Johnny leave me? Well, he learned that day, among other things, that when traveling in a foreign country, you should know how to dial the right phone numbers. Never accept three backpacks from your friends. He learned that Thomas was a terrible friend for not making it to the rendezvous point. Never trust him again. He also learned that a cruise ship waits for no man when it comes time to depart. Now here in the middle of Matthew chapter eight, it's time for the boat to leave. Jesus is moving on. They're setting sail. And if you're not following Jesus on his terms, we learn real quickly, you're not going with him to the other side. Now we've been walking along here in Matthew We've come through chapters five and six and seven, and we followed him up the mountain to hear his sermon on the mount. That was the first time Matthew tells us he encountered the crowd. And when he did, he walked up the mountain to teach them. This time, when he encounters the crowd, when he takes notice of them, he wants to pull away. In fact, he commands them to go to the other side, to separate the ones who are just tagging along from the disciples who follow and obey what he commands. Now, the other side of this lake, the Sea of Galilee, will be the country 
of the Gadarenes. And Luke's account, he refers to it as the land of the Gerasenes, two cities close together in the same area across the lake. It's not an unreasonable distance, but it's well out of Jewish territory into the Greek Hellenistic world, part of the Decapolis, outside of the rule of Herod. They'll be met there, we know by the next chapter, by this herd of pigs in the next healing episode that Jesus performs, which is just another reminder that this is not Jewish country if pigs are running all over the place. And Jesus is deliberately withdrawing at this point from the Jewish environment. It's a foreign journey of sorts, and, and Jewish supporters outside the disciple group who might wish to go with him probably can't or won't or wouldn't. And so we get here in Matthew 8, three examples, three teachings on discipleship. This portion of Matthew's gospel has nine miracle healings altogether, but they're broken up by two different discourses, two different narrative accounts of Jesus teaching on discipleship through these stories. This is the first one. These three little episodes together are almost like case studies that take what we've been learning along the way in the Sermon on the Mount and put it into action. What would that really look like if someone was to encounter that teaching with their life? So that's the scene for the first of our three case studies on discipleship. And Matthew records the first of the two encounters with a disciple In verse 19, a scribe then approached Jesus and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And so far in Matthew, these legal experts, scribes, haven't exactly been the heroes. In fact, at every point up to now, the scribes are viewed only in a negative light. And it's not going to get much better moving forward in the gospel. And people who call Jesus teacher... Well, in in Mark's gospel, that's an okay title for Jesus. But in Matthew's account, the only people that call Jesus teacher are outsiders. And so for all his enthusiasm and interest and his willingness to follow wherever, this man doesn't quite seem to get it. And so Jesus gives him this cryptic response that leaves us asking what's going on. He says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. It almost leaves us thinking that Jesus is really just looking for a place to stay. Maybe the man has come and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he says, well, I need somewhere to stay tonight. But Jesus isn't couch surfing here. And that's not why he's thrown this out to the young man. His response is actually revealing what Jesus knows about him, that this scribe has not yet considered the full commitment of what discipleship to Jesus really entails. He has no idea what's actually involved in apprenticeship to Jesus. It's remarkable, really, that a scribe is even interested at all. Most of them weren't. And the fact that they're leaving Jewish territory and that this man's willing to go with him is remarkable, but his interest is misplaced. In messy English, another literal way to translate this might be, I will follow you wherever it is that you may be going away to. He seems to have in mind that Jesus is a man who's going places. And maybe he just has in mind that he wants to take a quick trip 
across the lake. That sounds fun. Or maybe he thinks he's going to ride Jesus' coattails into some kind of, of power or fun or security or success. And Jesus knows his flippant offer is empty and shallow because he hasn't understood who Jesus is. Now, Jesus, we know, was a carpenter's son. And in Nazareth, that's a, a pretty stable place in the world, a pretty secure place. When he goes to Capernaum, he has a, a temporary home there with Peter's people. He seems to find hospitality wherever he goes in the Gospels. It's not that he's never had a bed and never will have one again. Although, ironically enough, his next rest is going to come on the floorboards of a boat. And there probably were a number of nights that he and his disciples spent in places more exposed than even the foxes and the birds. But the ministry that he's doing, the mission that Jesus is on, has no guarantees, and especially no guarantees of lodging. Foxes have dens they return to, birds have nests, but this itinerant mission that Jesus is on, he tells him, is not a road that leads to success or tranquility or security. It's one that leaves you to abandonment of home. I'll be going from place to place to place, and not one of those places, Jesus says, is going to be home for me. I am on the move. And following me means being on the move with me. Never really settled in this world. Not even truly at home. So we learn our first lesson in discipleship in this passage. That following Jesus requires sacrificing security and comfort. Following Jesus requires sacrificing security and comfort. Jesus never really was at home in his mission, was he? He was turned out because there was no room in the inn from birth. John tells us that when he went to Judea, they rejected him. Samaria has no place to lodge him. When he gets to the Gadarenes, they beg him to leave their district. He came to his own, the scriptures tell us, and they would not receive him. Even Galilee casts him out. And so Jesus is telling this man that he misunderstands the real cost of discipleship. And based on his response, which is none, the silence we get, we found out, find out that Jesus was right. The man wasn't willing to commit to that. He didn't want any part of that. His actions demonstrate that he wouldn't even follow Jesus to the other side of the lake after this. The cost was too high. I'll follow you wherever, he said. We say. Until we realize that following Jesus means giving up something that we found most comfortable. A place we've made into a refuge. It means being less at home here than we'd really prefer. And so, so many will just find and make themselves at home in this world and watch the boat go to the other side without them. Another of the disciples, another runs to him. Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. 
It brings us to our second lesson in discipleship, the second case study that teaches us that following Jesus requires prioritizing his kingdom above all else. Following Jesus requires prioritizing his kingdom above all else. Now for the last 10 years or more, the job listing site Career Builder has put together what it calls the most unbelievable excuses for calling in sick. Now, believe it or not, people calling in sick feel the need to say something other than, I'm sick. Which probably means that they're making it up, doesn't it? Surveying thousands of HR representatives, organizations, businesses, they take feedback on how many people call in sick, how often. They even interview employees, see how often they're fibbing on whether or not they're sick. They also collect actual excuses that people give to their employers. It turns out that when my dog ate my homework grows up, it gets really more creative. Last year, an employee said he couldn't come in because his false teeth flew out the window while he was driving down the highway. Another claimed that someone had glued her windows and doors shut so she couldn't get out of the house. Then there was the employee who said she couldn't come in because she had woken up in a good mood and didn't want to ruin it. I like the one from the past survey. The employee said the ghost in his house kept him up all night. Somebody else said, I just put a casserole in the oven. Can't make it to work today. Another said, my feet and legs fell asleep while I was sitting in the bathroom. And when I stood up, I broke my ankle. Another said, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in the blood pressure machine at the grocery store. I can't make it into work today. Another said, I put my uniform in the microwave to dry it and it caught fire. And a succinct and seemingly distraught one called in to let the boss know that I accidentally got on a plane. Is that after you accidentally go through security and check your luggage and buy a ticket? Yeah. There are so many illegitimate excuses out there. But you know, there are some that count. There are some we generally accept as all right, as excused absences, if you will. Maybe you've got jury duty. That'll get you out. Maybe the weather has made the roads impassable. What are you supposed to do about that? You can't control the weather. And most people, any reasonable workplace, school, what have you, death in the family counts as a reasonable excuse to not show up. I mean, there are a lot of excuses out there. And the hard part about this episode is that it seems like he gives Jesus a pretty legitimate one. I mean, he didn't say, I tried to dry my tunic in the microwave and it caught on fire, so I can't follow you today, Jesus. N.T. Wright points out that for a devout Jew in Jesus' day and in ours, one of the most solemn and sacred parts of their morning routine is to recite the basic Jewish prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God 
is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and so on. Saying this prayer is regarded as the most important part of Jewish life. It's woven in to the fabric of the people from beginning to now. This prayer, fundamental to their life, to their day, to the routine. Nothing comes before saying that prayer when you wake up, except according to the rabbi's teaching, when a man's father dies, He has such a strong obligation to give him a proper burial that this comes first before everything else, even before saying the hear, O Israel, prayer. Your father's death gets you off the hook for that. So when Jesus finds a follower saying that he's going to prepare a funeral for his father, he has to bury him first and then he'll come follow Jesus, you might expect him to just say, that makes sense. Sounds like a good idea. It is part of the Ten Commandments. Go, honor your father. Have a burial, and then I'll be here, ready for you to follow me. But instead, he says one of the most shocking things in the whole gospel story. The man seems to offer a reasonable condition, and Jesus offers this calloused response. Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. There are enough spiritually dead, Jesus' play on words says. There's enough spiritually dead already to take care of the physically dead. You come and follow me now. And scholars have poked around at maybe different ways to explain this, trying to make sense of this unconventional response to a reasonable excuse. What did the man mean when he says, I have to go bury my father? And so some say, well, he was going to bury him that day, Jewish custom demands that the burial be 24 hours after death. And so this would have been a pretty quick event. And so he could have been right on to following Jesus. Others say, well, no, no, there's actually a second burial of the bones. You also have to, also have to, to mourn for at least a week. And so this man is, is, it's a big ask. He's wanting to put this off for quite some time. Maybe he even wants to settle the whole estate when he says, bury my father. Other scholars have argued He's not really talking about a literal burial of his father. It's an idiom. He's saying, let me take care of my duties as his son and see my father through to the end of his life as I should and settle things for my family in the way that I'm supposed to. All of those are great. Any one of them could be what he means by bury my father, really, and not one of them makes this any easier of a comeback from Jesus. Either way, Jesus is cutting across the cultural norms and throwing the deeply rooted expectations of this man aside to say this, there are no excused absences in the kingdom of God. There's no more time to be lost. Whatever you've got, whatever business commitments or social obligations, and yes, even sacred family duties, true disciples can't shuttle back and forth between the old life and the new one. You have to leave it all behind and follow me now. It's striking. It's shocking. Maybe even a little bit of exaggeration, but Jesus is making a point. Robert Tannehill says, discipleship for Jesus is not merely another commitment which we add to the list of our commitments. It is the commitment, 
demanding a reordering of our lives from the bottom up. And this is the only excuse Matthew records. Can you imagine if they collected other responses? Can you guess what other people might have come up with for why they wouldn't follow Jesus right away? I can. Because I've used most of them at some point. People do all the time. Jesus is called to come and follow or to go this way or that or to be this kind of person or to give up this or that, to, to hear the real cost of discipleship. And people pause. I'll go wherever you go. But first, I need to get things settled at work or maybe more stable at, at home or, or when we can afford it, we'll start listening more closely. We'll come find you, Jesus, when we're a little less you know, busy. When the weather clears up, oh, we'll go where you're leading, Jesus, but you know, my kids need the best opportunities possible. Or I need to learn more, or I need to get myself straightened up. Surely you would understand, Jesus. These are reasonable things to ask. I'll do those first, and then I'll come find where you're going and catch up later. And we can brainstorm a whole list together right now. Some of them would sound so legitimate. Scholars would have to debate what we really meant because it would seem like something Jesus would give us a pass for. We're good at that kind of reason. We can logic our way out of that commitment. But when you hold all of them up to Jesus' call, every one of those excuses might as well be an accidental plane ride or being stuck in the blood pressure cuff at the grocery store. Because true disciples give up comfort and security, and true disciples follow Jesus right away, prioritizing his kingdom above all else. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Don't miss that with these two episodes in between it. Jesus says, commands, get in the boat and come to the other side. And we learn after these two men encountered them, the disciples got into the boat and followed him. It's what true disciples do. Jesus gives orders and they depart. Our third lesson, that following Jesus requires confidence in Jesus's power. They get in the boat They start to cross, the waves are swamping the boat. They don't know what to do. So they reach out and they grab the hand of the one who spoke all of the waters into motion. The moment he rises in that boat, everything goes back to calm. And suddenly they realize everything they've heard in the Psalms, everything that's been pointed to in the prophets, all of it is summed up in this one man right in front of them. Who is this? that he even commands the wind and the waves. It's a rhetorical question. Matthew's already answered it. This is God with us. Because only God can control the waves like that. It turns out that when you miss a cruise ship, you have to fly to the next port. 
Kevin calculated the cost, decided it cost him over $1,000. Customs, papers, tickets, travels, customs again. Fly to Fort Lauderdale, meet his family in the next Bahamas Island. All those, the cost of missing the boat. It may be that you have a good excuse. Maybe you see that the way is going to be full of storms if you get in that boat. And the other side is almost always unfamiliar territory. We're not told what the scribe or the disciple did. It's silence, but it's pretty clear. The story leaves us to ask ourselves, where will you be? Safely on the shore? Missing the boat? Surrounded by other people with excuses? Or on your way to the other side? With Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, the cost of discipleship is great, more than we expected, and we make so many excuses. We have so many reasons not to go your way fully. And Father, we pray that you would empower us to go to the other side, even when it seems risky, to go where you're leading, even when it seems costly. Remind us, oh God, that what we receive from you is infinitely more valuable than any cost before us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.